This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the March 2nd, 1943 edition of the CBS Morning News. It includes updates on the war from Australia, London, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. But first, here are the highlights of the latest news as received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Tuesday, March 2nd. RAF flyers raid Berlin in sixth straight night of British bombings in Europe. Americans raid Naples. Russians press forward a new northern offensive below Leningrad. Allies hold their own on entire Tunisian front. Now, here is Mel Allen. Before calling in Columbia's correspondent, here's the latest news from Russia. The newest Soviet offensive below Leningrad is rolling forward towards Staraya Rusa. Led by Marshal Timoshenko, Russian troops started the new drive nine days ago. A special Soviet communique announcing the offensive said that in eight days, the Russians smashed the most heavily fortified zone on the entire Soviet front. The German 16th Army in the Lake Ilmen area has been routed. 8,000 Nazi officers and men were killed, 3,000 more captured. The Russians have driven the Germans from 900 square miles of territory and liberated some 300 towns. Although frontline dispatches this morning say the northern offensive continues, the Russian noon communique gives no fresh details. It does report, however, that Soviet troops have made new gains west of both Kharkov and Kursk. And now for our first overseas report this morning, we take you after a brief pause to CBS Australia, George Morad reporting. MacArthur's cryptic comment yesterday that the Japanese are gathering sinister force in the great island arc pointing at Australia was underlined tonight with news that a 14-ship convoy is heading for the north coast of New Guinea. It is approaching, pilots said, under screen of heavy west, which at the time prevented attack. The convoy, half of the moor ships and accompanied by some air cover, is one of the heaviest ever aimed in this direction. This morning, our heavy and medium bomber commands were praying for a lift in the rain and clouds, and by this time it is possible the fight has been joined. Correspondents here differ violently as to whether this avalanche of Japanese strength gathering in Timor and the southeast flank means that the Nips are going for the big push, or whether this feverish activity is essentially defensive. Those who hold the latter view point out to the shift to the defense strategy will eventually be more dangerous to us than assault. It is patent that the existing stalemate must be broken. An amphibious attack is a costly business. Now the element of surprise has been so largely exhausted. This much is sure, that in months of this Pacific holding water, the enemy has greatly strengthened his airstrips and anchorages at Timor. On the 
small island groups of the Arapura Sea and along the north and south coast of Dutch New Guinea. Spotters say their fields are now capable of handling many more planes than the NIPs have previously used on any press. Seasoned troops from China and Malay are poised on island garrisons. Concentrations of transport and merchant shipping is heading. Powerful naval units are within easy striking distance. Whether the Japs now propose to throw in full power, where they previously had used but a fraction, is sheer guesswork. But this much may be inferred from the weight of enemy preparation and from General MacArthur's sharp warning that the dull season in the Pacific is almost over. This is George L. Moran in Australia. I return you to CBS in New York. We had hoped that we might be able to contact our correspondent in Chongqing, James L. Stewart. However, that's going to be impossible this morning. The news from China, though, this morning is largely news of air strategy and the possible decline and fall of the Japanese Air Force. Brigadier General Claire Chenault, commander of the American Air Task Force in China, called reporters in for a talk on the subject last Sunday. Dispatches reporting that conference are just arriving. They quote General Chenault as saying that Japan's Air Force has hit its peak and is now on the downgrade. The general said, from evidence of various sources, the enemy has run into two bottlenecks, aircraft production and training men. Then he added that the Japanese are using up their reserve stock of planes and getting short of personnel because of battle losses. General Chenault said he based his belief on these developments. No longer are the Japanese getting the results they formerly achieved. No longer are they attacking in overwhelming numbers in the South Pacific. They offered no effective air opposition to Allied air raids on Burma. On several occasions, Japanese seeking to bomb airfields in Yunnan province, China, and Assam province, India, lost most of their planes. The bomber crews they are employing lately are unskilled compared to those encountered last year, he said. Questioned as to a possible change in the outlook for the China theater since January 1st, General Chenault said things appear more hopeful. Pausing, he added, after the Casablanca conference. Do you mean on plans or in actuality, he was asked. Largely on plans at present, he answered, although things are moving. He pointed to public statements of President Roosevelt, Prime Minister Churchill, and other authorities, showing that China is an integral part in the definite plans to bring about the unconditional surrender of Japan. The general said it was his personal opinion that after Adolf Hitler was crushed, it would not take long to smash Japan. In regard to the present Japanese operations against China, General Chenault said the enemy undoubtedly would like to take Yunnan province to cut off the air supply route. But he added there is no evidence that the enemy is in sufficient strength in Burma and Thailand to carry out such an offensive successfully. Yes, I've been in China a long time, General Chenault told interviewers. It's not for me to decide global strategy. I'll fight on with what planes we have until conditions permit larger reinforcements. Another delayed dispatch comes from Chongqing this morning telling how the Japs in China's conquered provinces are forcing Chinese men to fight for Tokyo. Military informants in Chongqing said that the Japanese are enlisting thousands of young Chinese in the Japanese-occupied provinces of North China and Manchuria for use in Burma, where Nipponese armies hurriedly are being built up to resist any Allied invasion that may be attempted. Some Chinese troops already have been tried out in Burma and have proved able fighters. They are enrolled in the Japanese Army only after an intensive indoctrination course during which they are given lectures on alleged misdeeds by European nations. And now for a report from the British capital 
we take you to CBS London, John Daly reporting. Last night, Lancasters, Halifaxes, and Stirlings of the RAF continued the non-stop air offensive over Europe with a heavy and concentrated attack on Berlin. The weather was clear, and reports indicate that results were good. Objectives in Western Germany were also bombed, and mines were laid in enemy waters. Nineteen RAF bombers are missing from these operations, but the Berlin raid is described as the heaviest raid ever made on that city, with both two- and four-ton bombs dropped. London today is sobered by news from the continent which makes it quite clear that there has been too much wishful thinking about the prosecution of the war and too much wishful thinking about the winning of the peace. President Rieti of Finland, re-elected two weeks ago, put a stop to the rumors that the Finnish government was preparing to negotiate a separate peace. He told the Finnish people that the war would be continued and demands complete attention. Just where the rumors of a separate Finnish peace originated, no one can be quite sure. One theory is that the Germans put out the stories in the hope of creating Allied dissension by inducing Britain and the United States to back Finnish proposals, which would be rejected by Russia. But even if Germany initiated the rumors, there can be no doubt that they were fostered by those wishful thinkers in the United Nations who are now speculating on the possibility of a separate peace with Italy. Italy suffered a heavy blow in the loss of her African empire. But as long as fascists control the Italian government, Italy must sink or swim with her Axis partners. As for the peace, the opinion here is that Sumner Wells has brought up the question of post-war United Nations problems and their discussion in detail just in time. Moscow has rejected last week's statement by the Polish government in exile here in London, which declared that as far as Poland is concerned, frontiers between Poland and Soviet Russia should revert to the status quo previous to September 1939. That meant that Poland expected Russia to give up the Polish provinces, which were acquired under the German-Russian agreements of 1940. To put it in its simplest terms, the Russians have slapped down the Poles and hard. Moscow says flatly that there can be no recognition of the aggressive policy of imperialist states, which partitioned among themselves the traditional Ukrainian and Belorussian or White Russian lands. This is a reference to the Russo-Polish War of 1920, after which parts of the Ukraine and White Russia were incorporated into Poland. Sticking the knife in a little deeper, Moscow also branded the assertion of the Polish government that there had been no pre-war collaboration with Germany against the Soviet Union as untrue. It's the old army game. The third is the so-called National Service Act, which would give the government's power to draft civilian workers as well as members of the armed forces. Thus far, no clear-cut policy has emerged, either in Congress or in the administration. And the controversy appears to be raising around two basic questions. The first is whether the needs of the Army will continue to take precedence over the needs of the war production program on the home front. The other is whether the nation's manpower can best be utilized by voluntary or by compulsory distribution. The War Department has taken the position that its estimates of Army and Navy needs are conservative, that it cannot accept any proposal, such as Senator Bankhead, for example, for limiting the size of the Army and that its requirements can be met by a compulsory draft of civilian workers. Despite this, Manpower Director McNutt told Congress yesterday that he favors the continuation of present methods. As a side issue, members of the Senate are pressing demand for a work or fight bill to curb absenteeism, a measure which would have ordered striking workers in Navy yards to report to their draft boards was withdrawn yesterday in favor of a broader proposal introduced by Senator Byrd of Virginia to apply to all war industries. As a straw in the wind, Chairman Reynolds of the Senate Military Affairs Committee 
estimates Congress is about evenly divided for and against compulsory manpower legislation. And informed government officials predict that the administration must soon make a clear-cut choice on the whole issue. Deliberations on the continuation of Lend-Lease shipments to America's allies took a new turn today when Senator Tidings announced he will attempt to make the measure a springboard for permanent acquisition of foreign bases. Tidings will draft an amendment to authorize immediate negotiations with the British for title to the air and naval sites which were obtained in the Western Hemisphere in exchange for 50 American destroyers. This is Bill Costello in Washington. I return you now to CBS in New York. American heavy bombers under the Cairo Command raided the Italian port of Naples yesterday, scoring direct hits from the target area. In Tunisia, the British First Army in the northern sector stopped all Axis attacks short, and in the central sector, the Allies are jabbing enemy positions northeast and southwest of Catherine. Still farther south, the British Eighth Army is maintaining constant patrol pressure against the Axis-held Merritt Line. And that's the news from North Africa. Here in New York, Madam Chiang Kai-shek is resting comfortably this morning. China's first lady suffered from faintness yesterday during a round of ceremonies welcoming her to the city. Reports from her hotel say she intends to carry out her plan to speak at a Madison Square Garden mass meeting tonight. In Santiago, Chile, President Rios has announced that he will probably visit the United States early in May. He adds that a definite decision will not be made until he is conferred with American Ambassador Claude Bowers and with Vice President Wallace, who will visit Chile on his tour of South America. A fighting French spokesman in New York says this morning that sailors from the Richelieu and other French warships now in American ports have been leaving their vessels at the rate of 14 a day to sign up for the fighting French forces. The sailors are from ships under the command of General Giro. The fighting French spokesman adds that no effort is being made to persuade the sailors to sign up with the Golas forces. In Bear Creek, Montana, only 13 bodies have been recovered in the mine disaster, which trapped some 74 men underground. Those still caught in the mine are believed dead since the explosion occurred last Saturday. And that's the latest news. 